Welcome to Inside the Writer's Head podcast with Jeffrey Hillard. Hillard is the Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton County's 2015-2016 Writer-in-Residence. The Library Foundation's Writer-in-Residence program promotes writing, literacy, and creativity in our community and furthers the library's mission of connecting people with the world of ideas and information. Here is Jeffrey Hillard. It's a great pleasure for me to have in this midsummer podcast, uh, one of my longtime dearest friends, the writer and playwright Tom Atkinson. Uh, we're going to have a conversation in just a minute about Tom's plays and his fiction writing, which includes both short stories and novels. Uh, but first, let me just tell you that um, Tom's resume is, is wide and extensive, but of recent, um, you know, he's really hit stride with a couple of things that I want to just sort of highlight. Uh, his story, Dancing Turtle, was a finalist for the, the wonderful and prestigious Bath International Short Story Award. Um, they're going to publish Dancing Turtle um, along, with 20, along with 19 other stories, and it's going to be an anthology, and it's available in October. Um, and then also I want to make mention, too, of the fact that um, Tom's got a story that's in the new anthology called New Stories from the Midwest 2015, and that's published by New American Press. And his story in there is called Grimace in the Burnt Black Hills. And I want to highlight that anthology because this is substantial, actually. Uh, he's in there with some of our greatest and most well-known um, fiction writers, including Joyce Carol Oates, Josh Wheel. And Josh Wheel just won the Dayton International Peace Pri Literary Peace Prize last November. He's in there with uh, Charlie Baxter, Charles Baxter, Peter Ho, Peter Ho Davies, Stuart Dybeck, Rebecca Mackay, he's just, that's, that's an extraordinary anthology for Tom to be in, and he's so deserving of it. The, the thing that I want to say, too, about Tom, um, aside from just a straight sort of um, bio intro, is that he's been a friend of mine for about 35 years, and we have always talked writing. We've always talked publishing. We've had the same mentor, uh, the late Dallas Wiebe, for 35 years. And I have been a cheerleader for his work, and he's been a cheerleader for my work. Uh, and it's been one of the greatest moments and experiences in my life to have watched his work win awards be selected for anthologies by very well-known um, published writers, for him to get exposure, for his plays to get exposure in places like you know New York and Chicago and elsewhere. Uh, <clears throat> so I knew Tom when we were first starting to even publish and, can, and, and think of our stuff as very important to us anyway. And it, it's just been a great joy to see how his work has arced over the years and, and made a dent in both playwriting and in literary fiction. Uh, and so I'm really thrilled that he's here in this podcast. There's no way I would go out of this writer-in-residency role uh, <clears throat> in October without having Tom 
as one of my guests, and I specifically wanted him as a kind of summer guest um, this time. So, Tom, thanks for being here with me. Hey, Jeff, thank you. Uh, thanks for asking me. Yeah, so uh, what we're going to do is we're gonna, just going to have a conversation about fiction and maybe morph into playwriting some, too. Um, and he's going I want him to read. So we're going to hear some we're going to hear a couple of excerpts from some pieces that he wants to read. Uh, and also, let me say, as a kind of P.S., um, there's hardly a writer in Cincinnati that works harder uh, than Tom Atkinson at whatever project he's on. He's a consummate writer. Uh, and so I'm not saying that just because he's a a friend and a longtime friend, but he is that. He's a consummate writer. He's an artist. And you should go out of your way to find his work uh, and read his work. So uh, with that, let me ask you, Tom, first of all, um, I might know a few of the answers to this, but I want the listening audience to know a little bit about um, what were some of the first things to, to inspire you to become a writer? Uh, what were some things? When did you maybe know that you... You had this kind of even possible gift. We can all sort of pinpoint ties, but for you, when did that start? Uh, really early. I, I think I was probably 13 years old, or maybe earlier than that. My, my mom gave me this book that um, was about Native American storytelling when I was maybe nine years old, and uh, the cover was this all these people sitting around a campfire and this guy had them entranced with his storytelling and and there was something about that cover and all the stories inside and I, I really decided very I was in junior high school when I said that's what I want to do and uh, I'm still doing it yeah to, you know yeah, marginal success but you know, when 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 I first met you and got to know you, I I think mostly the attention was on fiction. And I think mostly it was on short fiction, too. When was it that you actually um, wrote your first play or began to dabble in playwriting? And you're I think you're the best playwright in this region, period. And I'm not well ensconced in um, the dynamic of playwriting as it is a culture also. I've written a play, but I, you know so far more than I about that dynamic and even about that aura and even maybe, the, you know, the, the whole scene itself. But when I, early on when we were students together back at UC, I, I can't, Maybe you were writing a play or plays back then. I can't recall, but I was really interested in knowing when you kind of started out with plays. Um, quite entirely by accident. I had submitted a screenplay which was based on um, a, a story arc of five short stories, and I turned it into a screenplay, and I sent it to the Ohio Arts Council and they didn't have a screenplay category, so they put it in the playwriting category. So suddenly I found myself on a list of Ohio playwrights, and um, a, a group got in touch with me asking if they could look at a play, and I told them that I was working on one, which I wasn't, 
and that they could look at it in like a month. And they said they needed to see it in two weeks. And I said, okay. And then I went to work. And that, that was Clear Liquor and Cold Black Nights, yep. which was uh, done by the stable players. And then uh, they did it at Playhouse in the Park in the big Marks Theater. So that's how it started. And I've, I've never really thought there was a huge difference in fiction and drama. I had a very good friend in St. Paul, Minnesota, who stopped writing fiction and just concentrated on plays because he said in fiction it just took too damn long to get somebody across the room. But mm-hmm. I, I've, mm-hmm. I've never felt that way. Mm-hmm. It's great. Uh, so in terms of the fiction, um, let's go back also to some, I don't know how many years we're talking about, but, but anyway, you, did you put a premium early on on the short stories or were you doing a novel even when we were young cats hanging out and writing were you I don't know I don't remember if you were doing a novel at that time even a draft um no uh, what were you doing well, stories mostly it, it, it's sort of come full circle I've I the first thing that I worked on, which was way before it was fashionable, was a series of linked short stories. And that was that every short story stood on its own. You could read it independently without having read of any of the others. And But if you read all of them together, you realized that they were interconnected by sort of time, character, and space. And that is what allowed me to write the first novel. I think I sort of had to get a running go at it. And the new collection that all the stories that are getting published um, in these anthologies, those are also linked stories. And again, you, you wouldn't know it by reading them individually, but if you read them all together, you realize that, uh, you know, what maybe a secondary character in one story is the main character in another story and they they all occupy the same town and you get to see the same event from very different perspectives um which i think just adds a layer of interest um makes it more compelling so it in in that collection is um appalachia or a fictional community in Appalachia, sort of a, a, a nexus around which things evolve? Yes, it's a, it's a fictional community in southeast Ohio, sort of hard up against um, Ohio Appalachians. And I, 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 I deliberately wanted to make it fictional so, you know, people weren't sort of, I don't know, you know, insulted about their hometown <laughs> or, or you, you know, correcting me about the name of a bridge or, 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 or something oh, yeah, like that. Right. Yeah, so when you, when you do that, when you have this sort of center like you've got and they're interlinked stories, um, which I think is phenomenal, um, and I, I love that concept too, big time, uh, what are some things like as an as a writer and as an artist that are most important to you? For example, um, are are you are you more concerned about making sure that 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 pl- 
place is emphasized in a certain way, even more so than normal, say, or that the characters become more important and should take front stage. How how are these? How do you how do you weigh these things as a writer? Well, how do how do you weigh this thing in a process? I I think that my work has evolved, hopefully in a good way, and I, and I think that the the response I'm getting is that it's evolving in a good way, but. I think two things. One is specificity of detail. And I think that, y you know, and any writer coming up, I would encourage that, y y you know, whenever you're faced with the decision, you know, to make something specific or non-specific, mm -hmm. you always go with making it specific. You know, he's, he's, he's not drinking. If I say that he's drinking a Coca-Cola, or if I say he's drinking Big K Cola, that is a statement. It's a statement about his socioeconomic condition. It's a statement about any number of things. So if he's drinking Big K Cola, you know something about him that he, he's not drinking name brand. He could have played. He could have paid maybe seventy nine cents for that two liter of Big K as opposed to ninety nine cents for that uh, exactly. two liter of Coke or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and and, I also and it's not Hawaiian punch in a two liter, man. It's Big K. <laughs> right, right. That stuff will take your teeth out quicker. <laughs> and, and I've also just sort of done away with introduction. And, and I mean, and, and like expository sense, stuff, so to right, speak. And, right. Yeah. And I and I think that I, I just sort of jump in with both feet and either the audience is along for the ride or they're not. And uh, I, I think I'm have been successful with that. But that's just sort of the direction that it's taken. And, and I think that if the characters are real enough and genuine enough and recognizable enough as living, breathing human beings, people go along for the ride because that's why they're reading. They want to know someone else's story. They mm -hmm. want to know what it's like to be someone else. Right, right. Okay, you got some work to read. Let's hear some... Um, sort of uh, let's hear an extension maybe uh, of, of some things you're talking about with respect to your real attention to character uh, or also your attention to detail which is magnificent well I'm, I, I brought this specifically for Jeff because <laughs> he's a poet and you know they're all into that lyrical stuff so <laughs> I'm going to do some like kind of lyrical stuff for him um, this is a little section right. out of Dancing Turtle, and the narrator is a 15-year-old girl with severe cerebral palsy, and she, her mother has taken her to the Appalachian Festival, and she's watching an Indian stomp dance, and there's a Native American boy that she is kind of attracted to that she's watching. And I, I think that's all you need to know. And it's just a couple of paragraphs. Two women in deerskin dresses began a slow shuffling dance in a wide circle around him. Other Indians fell in behind them. And as they stagger stepped around that field, they motioned for everyone to join them. Mostly it was little kids that did. 
little blonde boys and girls looking for any excuse to run around. But there was something about that dance, the awkward, hesitant rhythm of it that reached right inside me. I called to those two women, and for the first time in my life, I knew it didn't matter if I sounded like the honking of a goose on the mm. wing. I fell over on my side trying to get up because I knew, I knew I had to be out there. I rolled onto my stomach to push myself up, and as I battled my unforgiving body, two worn and beaded moccasins appeared at each elbow. They lifted me up, cooing comfort, the deer skin soft as velvet against my arms. We worked our way into the slow current of dancers floating down like autumn leaves into that song. Mm -hmm. And when they finally let go, I was out in front and everyone behind followed my skewed path, heads down and halting steps to somewhere I've never been. I don't know how long his song went on or how many times I passed close by the boy in the bone necklace, close enough, it seemed to me, to feel the breath of it on my cheek. I only know that I lived another life, that for the length of it, the pain was gone, gone like it had never been, gone like the lost ghost of a memory. And when it was over, I shuffled in place before him, my eyes fixed in the erratic orbit of my head, locked onto his. I said, I can mm. hear your heart. It's mm. beautiful. It's important in that moment that she, to me, that she's out front. Absolutely. It, it's important that she's out front. It's important that she feels that breath and she conveys that in the narrative she's she's a young girl right um and she's got cerebral palsy mm -hmm. how did you how did you come up with that idea how i mean we talked about ideas and stuff like that but but that that's what i love it's that stretch you know it's that risk you're not writing about um, a man our age, necessarily. <laughs> You're taking a young teen. She's a teen, right? Right. And she's got cerebral... And you're construing that into a, a fictional narrative. Talk about how that comes to you, that sort of thought. Well, um, back in the day with Dallas and yeah. at UC, um, one of our authors that we sort of stood in awe of was Harry Cruz. <laughs> and... He was a total wild man and everything else. But one of the things that he gave me as a writer was the permission yeah. to take on anything. He, he wrote a book called Gypsy's Curse, where the narrator is basically a circus freak. He's, mm -hmm. he's deaf. He was born with no bones in his legs, and he walks around on his hands. So in order to talk, he has to rock up on one hand to do sign language. And I read that book, and when I got done with it, I, I, I was amazed at the gigantic brass cojones that yeah. this guy yeah. had mounted on him because it was successful. 
It was yeah. an incredibly successful book. And I just said, you know, he gave me permission to say that there's no place that I can't go. Yeah. Or the imagination can't go in terms of doing that. Um, you get another excerpt. Uh, you've got you've got a couple. Yeah, let's hear some more. Okay. Um, I, I don't know what's going on with the Indian theme here, but th- this is from Grimace in the Burnt Black Hills, which is in uh, going to be out in the news stories from the Midwest. And the the main the narrator in this, his name is Paul, and everyone calls him Grimace. Um, because he's been severely burnt in a fire. Mm. And um, he's named after the character in the old McDonald's commercials who looks sort of like just a featureless purple blob. And um, Paul is, his truck breaks down out in Rapid City, South Dakota, and he ends up in the parking lot of a grocery store trying to fix his truck. And an Indian guy is helping him, and the Indian guy's wife and sister-in-law work in the bakery of the grocery store. And um, the the wife's sister comes out to sort of introduce herself to Paul with a cinnamon roll, which is a great way to introduce <laughs> yourself um, if you ever have the opportunity. So he's working on his truck, and she comes out. I had the top hose loose and was lying in the puddle of engine-warmed water with the flashlight and a screwdriver working on the bottom one when I heard soft footsteps close by. I said, Is that you? And a girl said, No, it's me. I scooted out far enough to shine the flashlight up at her. It was the Indian girl from the back of the bakery, and before she could get her hand up, I saw she had a bad hair lip, and not like the ones you usually see these days that you can hardly tell, but like one from the old days, like a piece of fishing line was pulling her lip up inside one nostril. But with her hand there covering it, I could tell right away it was Edgar's sister-in-law because she looked just like the pretty girl behind the bakery case. If somebody took the pretty girl behind the bakery case out between the dumpsters and shot her in the mouth, she said, Paul, are you hungry? She unrolled the bag and took out that cinnamon roll, and when I reached for it, she held it off to one side. Your hands are dirty. Then she pulled off a piece of that cinnamon roll and fed it to me, Mm. and I let her. I don't know why. I don't eat in front of anybody except my mom on account of how hard it is to keep my lips closed. It's kind of a mess. And I can't feel if I got food stuck on me or not. But I sat there and chewed, and when I opened my mouth like a baby bird, Claire kills crow indian was there to feed me i pretended my face wasn't in the deep shade of that camo visor and in those brief moments of forever i forgot just who it was 
sitting on that concrete parking block. That's the first page in Grimace. It's pretty awesome. What we're, what we're, and let me just ask you about that story, and that's a story that's going to appear. I want to make sure I get it right again. The new stories from the Midwest, 2015, edited by Lee Martin. Yeah, yeah. It's supposed to be out in October. He's a great writer too. I love Lee. Yeah. Um, so, what were some things that? Let's talk about Grimace for a second. What were some things that you wanted to make sure happened in that story for you? It obviously got some attention by some big guns, which is deserving, but what were some things you wanted to happen? Grimace is one of those things that happens very rarely in a writer's (laughs) career (laughs) where it's sprung full-blown from my forehead. Grimace had been a secondary character in a lot of different stories. He was just this guy that was burnt up and you didn't really know why he was burnt. There were a lot of different rumors going around and the different stories about how he ended up that way. And he was a coworker of a couple of people in other stories. And then one night at about three in the morning, I woke up and Grimace was inside my head pounding to get out and demanding his own story. And mm. I filled up three little post-it notes with this microscopic scrawl of mm. things that I wanted to happen. And it changed considerably in the, in the writing of it, but in the feel of it, it didn't. And that was that... Um, There are two, Claire and Paul are sort of very compromised people in the world, and yet they find each other. And it it has a lot to do Mm. with um, identity and self-identity. And, you know, at the end of the story, he offers to show her a photograph of himself how he looked before the fire. Wow. And she not only refuses to look, but she makes him throw it out the car window. And that's a moment of beauty. It is. It's 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 almost contradictory, but it works because of because of just that morsel of beauty kind of intrinsic in the photo itself, which is of a almost a an uh, uh, lack of a better word, like a perfect face, you right. know? Right. Even though it's tossed out of the window. Right. It's perfect. That's, it's that's, a great touch. It's a great touch. That's not him. It's not him. No. Yeah. So, okay, you got another excerpt because I want, I want uh, listeners to hear this prose. Oh, okay. Um, this one is called uh, Me and Mr. Tinkles. Mr. Tinkles is a cat, a by cat. the way. Right. Um, and this just came out last week in the Fish Anthology 2016. Um, and what you need to know about this story is that uh, the narrator is an older man, um, and he and his wife are dealing with uh, their son has been killed in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And it happened to have been uh, by a roadside bomb 
and it happened to have been photographed, filmed. And so the, the local news comes out to bother them about it, and they handle it very differently. And in this scene, um, the narrator has just knocked the reporter into some honeysuckle bushes with a 36-inch breaker bar and at the moment is standing above the videographer with the breaker bar um, trying to explain things to him. After a long moment, I said, What do you want to know? What a hero he was. He was walking down the road and got blown to hell. They found a boot with some bones sticking out and a hand's breadth of skin caught in some scrub brush a hundred yards away with his tattoo on it, a baseball catching fire. The whole high school ball team got one. You know what he thought? He wrote me a letter I can't show his mother, never had, got it hid in the truck said he'd walk from one end of that stinking country to the other and kill everything that drew breath if he could come home one mm-hmm. minute sooner. And he didn't even hate them, just thought they were the poorest, raggedy-ass bunch of folks he'd ever saw. Couldn't believe how tough they had to be to try and scratch a living out of nothing but rock. Well, Ben, it was my idea him joining up. Thought it'd make a man of him. Get him out of this dying place. Three hots in a cot. Regular paycheck. Maybe learn him a trade. There ain't a job in four counties if you don't count cooking meth. The Ford plant plant closed. And that little no-count mine finally shut down for good and all. And all the burger flipping Mm -hmm. jobs was already bespoke. She ain't never forgiven me. And she never will. Watches the home shopping channel all day and knits baby clothes for grandchildren we ain't never going to have. Wow. So as you keep writing, you know, week in, week out, month in, month out, what are things now um, that are more precious to you about your writing, about the craft of fiction than ever before? What are things that seem to be um, paramount to you um, after being in it for so long? It, uh, I think authenticity, if I have to put it into a single word, and that is that that I want the audience to get inside these people and be utterly, utterly convinced that they are inside. That there's, without the intrusion of an author guiding them, mm-hmm. that they are just in there and living that life. How do you get there? That is hard. <laughs> I, I, yeah. That, uh, I'm sorry. I, I wish I was more articulate about this, but I, I think... That I know that's like a $60,000 question. 
It is because I think everybody's process is very different. And I know writers who, you know, sit down and write every single day, regardless of what, you know, whether they're going to throw out what they're writing or not. And that's not my process. And I'm not recommending my process. And I'm not casting dispersions on anybody else's process. I think that, you know, if you're going to try to do this, you have to find the way that works for you. And I think the way that it works for me is that I do a lot of the writing and the rewriting and the revision in my head Mm -hmm. before I ever sit down to commit it to, well, I would say paper, but to commit it to the hard drive of my computer. Yeah. So you think about it a great deal. Oh, yeah. yeah, You you kick it around, yeah. As a matter of fact, I... I would say that that is my process is that I I let it knock around inside my brain for so long that I can't stand it. And then when it absolutely has to get out, that's when I get it down. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. is why I don't tend to do a tremendous amount of rewrites. I'm not one of those writers that does 12 drafts of a story. If I do two or three, that's a lot. Yeah. Well, we could spend tons and tons of time talking to Tom. He and I could kick around so much. Um, and I just really appreciate your coming in today. I'm so uh, happy to be here. Yeah. And this is Tom Atkinson I've been speaking to. This is um, Inside the Writer's Head. And please, um, if you can, make sure that you link this podcast um, in your own social media output, whatever you do, because we want listeners to make sure we hear Tom and hear his hear some of his excerpts on this podcast. So thanks again, Tom. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Jeff. You've been listening to Inside the Writer's Head podcast with Jeffrey Hillert, the Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton County's 2015-2016 Writer in Residence. This podcast was recorded in the library's makerspace. Use the Makerspace yourself at the main library or at the Reading and St. Bernard Branch Libraries. The podcast was mixed by Adam Baker. Special thanks to Kimber L. Fender, Sandy Bullock, Missy Dieters, Kate Lawrence, and Chris Rice, and to the Library Foundation for funding the Writer-in-Residence program. Also, thanks to the band Amphibians for providing the song Sharkbait for this podcast. Learn more about the Writer-in-Residence and related events on our website, cincinnatilibrary.org. There, you can also read our Inside the Writer's Head blog and comment about this podcast. Be sure to join us again next month for another Inside the Writer's Head podcast. <laughs>